Welcome to another episode of our Livre Ouvert with me, Avanti Victoire. For quite some time now, I have wanted to do an episode on the Nazis. One of the many reasons why I have wanted to do this episode is because all across Europe, the far right is on the rise. But what is even more disturbing is the phenomenon of reducto ad Hitlerum, which is basically likening or equating your adversaries or enemies to Hitler and the Nazi party. I should add, the phrase was coined by Professor Leo Strauss in 1953 and it was sort of fine-tuning the phrase reducto ad absurdum, which basically means reduction to the absurd. Hitler, as we know, rose to power on the 30th of January 1933 through dodgy, shady backroom deals. And barely two months later, the Weimar democracy was pronounced dead. This was of course at a time when German pride had hit its lowest and Hitler held out the promise of bringing back the glory days. But the Nazis believed in order to make that great comeback, they required to put race and ethnicity at the centre of their grand project. And so, on the 15th of September 1935, the Nuremberg race laws were passed. To be precise, there were two specific laws that were enacted. One was the Reich Citizenship Law and the second was the law for the protection of German blood and honour. Furthermore, changes were made to the constitution in order to reflect the Aryanization in all forms of civil life. This was hardly unexpected because in July 1936, Hitler in a speech defined the distinctions between state and party where he stressed that the government and the legislation should be the task of the party and the administration should be overseen by the state. For those of you interested in widening your knowledge about how the German constitution was diluted, please read The Dual State by Ernst Frankel. Back in 1935, Hitler had not yet implemented his final solution and so Ernst Frankel, in spite of being Jewish, was a lawyer who was allowed to stay on and continue his work because he had served Germany during World War I. Frankel was a diligent lawyer and what he did was he carefully took notes and made records of how the German constitution was being dismantled by the Nazis. His brilliant book, the dual state provides a deep insight into the political structure of the Nazi regime. Frankel's book defined two absurd states that went hand in hand in order to achieve the objectives of the Nazi party. Frankel called this the dual state because he emphasized that there were two situations, states or circumstances that carried on parallelly in the Nazi regime. One he defined as the prerogative state, which had unlimited inconsistency and unbound violence. And the second he defined as the normative state, which was the administrative body endowed with great powers for safeguarding the legal order of courts and other activities of the administrative agencies. Again, those of you who are interested in constitutional law might have heard of this book, but there's another aspect that I'd like to talk about that's rarely discussed when we speak of the Nazis, which is who were the Nazi enablers? Who funded the Nazis? This is an aspect that is rarely covered in history books. 
And there is a very good reason for that, which is that many of those billionaires are still active today and their businesses are thriving. Many of us use their products without even knowing how they made their profits and how they have stayed in power because of their ideology. Now, this is not a crime to use some of their products. I'm not going to go about saying that those who are using those products need to be held accountable. However, those companies, especially because they are families... And by that, I want to be specific. I mean, they have inherited that wealth that was made during the Nazi regime. And they seem to have entirely forgotten the ways and means in which they amassed that wealth. Take, for example, or zum Beispiel, as they say in Germany, the innocent and quite delicious Balsen biscuits. I'll admit I've had a couple of them and they're quite delicious, but they can't hold a candle to our French biscuits. The heiress of this biscuit company is one Verena Balzen, who is very young and she went on television one fine day and quipped that she was a diehard capitalist and wanted to spend her money by buying yachts and traveling around the world. Fairly innocent thing to say, very honestly, and nothing against that. However, when she was pressed to disclose her views on forced labor that her family had used during the Nazi regime, she just quipped and said, well, that was the price that everybody paid in those days. It was well before my time. I have nothing to do with it. One might argue that the young lady had nothing to do with it, which is perfectly fine. But one cannot deny that those profits that were made gave them a giant leap compared to the rest of the world, and for them to shamelessly sit and say that they had nothing to do with it and benefit from it is absolutely shocking. Unacceptable and should be condemned. A couple of years ago, a dear friend of mine gifted me a book called Nazi Billionaires by David de Jong. Now, we all had a sneaking suspicion that the Nazis were probably funded by the billionaires. But up until now, there was very little proof because the vast majority of the billionaires made it look like they were victims themselves of the Nazis. But this book actually goes into great details and exposes who was really behind funding the Nazis. So I'm going to start with naming a few of them for you to get an idea of how deep this network was. BMW or BMW fans will be disappointed to learn that Gunter Quant was one of these billionaires. Many of us who use the insurance company Allianz should know that the von Finks were heavily implicated in funding the Nazis as well. Then there's Porsche and Peace. And of course, the Oetkers or the Kasilovsky family, many of you may know this from your Oetker pizzas that you might have popped in on an odd Saturday evening. There is a very long list, but I'll stop with Friedrich Flick, the owner of Daimler AG or Daimler AG, and a convicted war criminal. It is estimated that Mr. Flick contributed about 7.65 million Reichsmarks to the regime by 1945. He became a member of the Kepler Circle, and later it was called the Circle of Friends of the Reichsführer SS, a group of German industrialists whose aim was to strengthen the ties between the Nazi Party and the business industry. 
Fortunately, there was an exception to the rule. Not every manufacturer or industrialist was happy to jump on the bandwagon and fund Hitler. There was the famous manufacturer Bosch. And Bosch remained vehemently opposed to Hitler until the very end. In fact, he also formed the Bosch Circle that even attempted to assassinate Hitler. And that is something very interesting because in France, quite often, not today, but when you watch old French films, the most common racial slur for the Germans is Bosch. And that is very interesting. And there's a reference to it in a very famous film called Papi Fait de la Résistance. And it's a hilarious film that I encourage you to watch. It has famous French actors such as Michel Blanc and Josiane Barasco. Please watch it if you have a chance and you'll see the scene where this term is used. And it always amuses me today because I say to myself, why on earth would we use Bosch? Why not Von Fink or The Flicks? This is so unfair to Mr. Bosch. Before I move on to the next part of this podcast, I want to leave you with one last interesting fact about billionaires and funding, which is as early as February 1931, von Fink, along with Kurt Schmidt, the then CEO of Allianz, met Hitler and pledged 5 million Reichsmarks to the SA or the Sturmabteilung as a stay against a putsch, which could have evolved into a civil war. Of all the books that I've read, I've got to say that not many books talk about this so explicitly and give details on how the billionaires totally backed the Nazi party, which I think is a rather interesting topic that should be covered more extensively by different historians. But the second topic that rarely receives any coverage is the fact that the Nazis actually managed to export their ideology to distant lands. So, of course, they had the brown shirts and the black shirts, but very few people talk about the green shirts and the blue shirts. So I'm going to spend some time talking about those different colors of shirts that cause problems across the planet. When the Nazis took over Germany, the wealthier Jewish families were fortunate enough to flee before Hitler unleashed his entire plan. Felix Mendelssohn, the prolific composer, was of Jewish descent and his family was amongst those who emigrated in time. The Mendelssohn-Bartholdy family sold their property and the Nazis were only too happy to acquire the prime piece of real estate for a throwaway price. The house was obviously raised to the ground and an embassy was built on that very site in 1940. When the Nazis invaded Yugoslavia in 1942, they needed a centre to deal with the invaded territories of the east. And so the embassy was turned into Ostministerium, or the Ministry of the Occupied Eastern Territories. Hitler put Alfred Rosenberg in charge of this ministry because he was a Baltic German who was eager to join Hitler's Ubermenschen fantasy. The Ostministerium network reached out to the Mufti of Jerusalem, Amin al-Husseini, who wanted to get rid of the British at any cost and shared the Nazi views on the Jews. As far as the Mufti was concerned, it made perfect business sense to pay homage to Hitler in order to kill two birds with one stone. When Hitler went on his rampage, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem gave him his full support to the final solution by backing a secret operation called Tiger B. The Mufti gave his blessings to the formations of Bosnian SS Hansdar or Sabre divisions. The division comprised mostly of Muslims but also had a minority of Catholic Croat soldiers as well as ethnic Germans or Yugoslav Volksdeutsch, the ethnic Germans of Baltics who pledged their loyalty to Hitler. 
As baffling as it sounds, the Nazi regime's move to include Muslims in their narrative against the Jews was pure genius. Muslim prisoners of war were only too happy to fight on the German side. They were given uniforms bearing the slogan, Bis Allah Bilen, meaning, May Allah be with you. Thus, Tiger B was in action. Careful attention was paid to the narrative sold to Muslims, but the fact that they were Semites like the Jews was cleverly glossed over because the Nazis wanted to weaken the Allies in North Africa. To be honest, it was so easy to do it because all they had to do was simply tap deeper into the mutual dislike that the Jews and the Muslims had for each other. Most of us have heard of brown shirts and black shirts, but rarely anyone remembers the Green Shirts of Egypt. Founded in 1933, the Young Egypt Party, Misr El Fateh, was styled on the lines of the brown shirts and recruited zealots, including the charismatic Gamal Abdel Nasir, who would go on to become the president of Egypt and perhaps the most popular leader in the Arab world. It was not just the Arab world, but even China saw the rise of Chiang Kai-shek and the Blue Shirt Society, which was very much along the lines of the brown shirts and the black shirts of Europe. Interestingly, Chiang Kai-shek was completely backed by America against Mao Zedong, who was, of course, a communist. The rise and fall of the Blue Shirt Society was rapid, but it is rarely mentioned by even the Communist Party of China, except for the fact that the Blue Shirts were, in fact, a part of the Kuomintang faction, which is a faction of the Chinese Nationalist Party that eventually retreated to Taiwan and found their stronghold in that region. For more links on this topic, please visit my Substack at alivrouvert.substack.com. Thank you for listening.